Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today we have a new episode of Postscript, a series of conversations that Lily Gorn and I have created that allow authors to connect their scholarship to contemporary political events. Today's Postscript explores the intellectual and political significance of Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American woman elected to Congress and to run for the U.S. presidency. Her slogan was unbought and unbossed, and she fought for the working class women against war throughout her long career. She defined empowerment in the second half of the 20th century. In order to explore Chisholm's political and intellectual legacy, I'm delighted to welcome two accomplished scholars to the New Books Network. Dr. Anastasia Kerwood is an associate professor of history at the University of Kentucky and the director of African American and Africana Studies in the University of Kentucky's College of Arts and Sciences. She's held prestigious fellowships from the Ford Foundation, Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, and the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Dr. Kerwood's scholarship focuses on the interface between private life and historical context for Black Americans in the 20th century. In particular, She studies the workings of gender in African-American social, cultural, intellectual, and political history. Her first book, Stormy Weather, Middle-Class African-American Marriages Between the Two World Wars, published by the University of North Carolina Press, explored marriages between middle-class African-Americans in the era of the New Negro and the Great Depression. Dr. Kerwood's current project is a critical biography of Shirley Chisholm entitled Aim High, Shirley Chisholm and Black Feminist Power Politics. Welcome to the podcast, Anastasia. I'm delighted to be here. So I'm also pleased to welcome Dr. Zinga Frazier, Assistant Professor of Africana Studies and the Women's and Gender Studies Program at Brooklyn College CUNY to the conversation. Dr. Frazier's scholarship focuses on African-American politics, Black women's history, and feminism. She has been researching and writing about Chisholm for almost a decade, and her master's thesis, Unbought and Unbossed, A Radical Political Ideology, received the Zora Neale Hurston Award from Columbia University. Dr. Frazier worked for the former congressman, Major R. Owens, the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, and served as the U.S. Policy Program Coordinator for the Women's Environmental and Development Organization. Dr. Frazier's forthcoming book is entitled, Sister Insider, Sister Outsider, Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan, Black Women's Politics in the Post-Civil Rights Era. 
She serves as the director of the Shirley Chisholm Project at Brooklyn College, CUNY, and I'm delighted to welcome her to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we have listeners from all over the world, so I'll really briefly introduce some of them to Shirley Chisholm. She's born in Brooklyn in 1924, but also spent time being raised by her grandmother in Barbados before returning to New York City to attend high school in Bedford-Stuyvesant. After college, she spent years working as teacher, director of nursery school, education consultant, and community activist. And in 1965, she was elected to the New York State Assembly. When she was elected by the people of Brooklyn's 12th Congressional District, she became the first African-American woman to serve in the House of Representatives. Her slogan, one that stuck with her throughout her life, was unbought and unbossed. In 1972, she ran to be the Democratic candidate for president and went to the Democratic Convention with delegates, though Senator George McGovern was ultimately the candidate that unsuccessfully faced Richard Nixon. She said many times that she wanted the United States to live up to its promises. Chisholm said of herself that her achievement was having the audacity and nerve to run for the presidency of the United States. She said, quote, I want history to remember me not as the first black woman to have been elected to the Congress, not as the first black woman to have made a bid for the presidency of the United States, but as a black woman who lived in the 20th century and dared to be herself. Um, the 50th anniversary of Chisholm's election to Congress in 2019, the TV series Mrs. America about the fight for the ERA, and the nomination of Senator Kamala Harris to be the vice presidential candidate for the Democratic Party have led more people to pay attention to Shirley Chisholm's legacy. But she, she wasn't someone highlighted by Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama when they ran for president. But yet the two of you and other scholars have been studying her for many years Zinga, let's start off by you telling us a little bit about how did you come to write about Shirley Chisholm and how did this connect to or even depart from the work that you had done previously? Well, as a resident of Shirley Chisholm's district, um, I have a direct kind of connection to who she was and my mother knew Chisholm coming up in New York City. Um, and so there is, of course, a personal connection to Shirley Chisholm, as well as serving as a congressional staffer for the member who takes Shirley Chisholm's seat after she retires from political office in Congress, um, Major R. Owens. So I was, of course, quite familiar who she was and um, the work that I did in undergraduate at Columbia University started really connecting the ways in which I felt she was disremembered being a resident from Brooklyn, as well as someone who studied African-American politics as a political science major. I felt that she was disremembered not only from a political science framework in terms of thinking about Black politics in the 1970s, but also how she was disremembered from also Black women's history and American history and political history. And so those are the kind of connections that connected me to Chisholm and her legacy and that work. And then the work that I'm doing now at the Shirley Chisholm Project at Brooklyn College. So there, in many ways, it's come full circle. Uh, it's funny, my grandparents were from that district. I grew up in, in Queens with my father talking about Shirley Chisholm all the time, though he had not lived in Brooklyn for decades. Um, 
as somebody who was heroic in her uh, forcefulness for fighting for the working class, it, why do you think she sort of dropped out of focus um, from being so central to American politics? I don't know if she's dropped out of focus in terms of the purviews of historians and political scientists for those for those people who lived in those districts like yourself and your family members and my family members she was always a part of the political discourse and she's been a part of the political discourse for a number of people however i think in terms of the scholarship there has been a lag and continues to be a lag at looking specifically at black women as political agents as well as strategists. And so the framing of African-American politics has always been in many ways masculinized. So when we think of the time period in which Shirley Chisholm comes to fruition and of her her political organizing, as well as her policy initiatives, it's really framed in a kind of masculinized framing of Black men, Black mayors. There's continues to be focus on Black men in politics, but not necessarily Black women. And so because of that kind of racial and gendered intersectional inequality or inequity, there has been a way in which we disremember her from the kind of public discourse. I like the term disremember. I think that works really, really well. And, um, and, and that explanation is helpful to me because I've never really understood it as a New Yorker. She was just kind of part of the scenery of, of New York politics, and you didn't forget her any more than you were going to forget Ed Koch. So, um, so that's fascinating. And your, um, uh, uh, and is there any field maybe not political science or history where she remained re- remembered correctly is there is there any sort of deviation within the fields of who does get her a little more right she's always mentioned right? i i think it's important to know of course she's mentioned but she's mentioned in a peripheral framework right she's mentioned her name she's a first she's always going to be mentioned in that kind of framing but as a significant interrogation, there continues to be, those of us who do this work, a way in which we insert her, not only into uh, intellectual political history, but a larger public discourse. Uh, And so I think that, you know, in African-American politics or Black politics, there has been a kind of focus because there haven't been that many African-American women until recently um, to Congress. There has just been a framework of just looking at them on the surface and there hasn't been a significant interrogation of them. But I think what we see now is with the increased numbers, at least in political science, it's just in terms of how much quantitative data you have in terms of numbers. And the more numbers you have, the more significant people Mm -hmm. see the individuals are. I think in history, you continue to see Chisholm, but there hasn't been the interrogation that we would see, for example, as Coleman Young or others who were Black mayors in the 1970s. So there continues to be this kind of progression. And I think there's more, at least when I started, there wasn't (laughs) anyone um, besides myself and maybe Barbara Winslow 
at that time who's who did work um on Chisholm, I think. And then now we have Anastasia and others who, you know, are engaging in in this discourse, um, looking at Shirley Chisholm, but also a broader discourse at looking at all of the women. Um, the work that I do on Chisholm is not just connected just to only Chisholm, but the book will also is also the first kind of comparative study of Black women's politics at looking at Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan. Um, Anastasia, your first book, Stormy Weather, was about a completely different era. So I'm wondering what brought you to the 1960s and to Shirley Chisholm after looking at that earlier period in in American political history. I came to Shirley Chisholm from uh, a background as a social, cultural, intellectual historian of Black women and gender. And so uh, what had caught my attention and what what I had really engaged with as I wrote Stormy Weather about Black Americans' marriages in the early 20th century was, um, was, was women's thought about what women uh, should, uh, should be and do. And there was such a diversity of thought um, among Black women on how to tackle gender divisions of labor and also s- simply Black women's intellectual production, period, um, that I grew fascinated with the general enterprise of Black women's intellectual history and um, and also who these women were, where they were in time and space and, and, um, and, and what their lives were like. So, so I got interested in biography and, um, and I was teaching a seminar on biography. I was then at Vanderbilt university and, uh, and I wanted to teach a biography of Chisholm, and that's because uh, my parents also knew Chisholm. Uh, they were in Massachusetts. They, they, my mother was a volunteer, was the treasurer for Chisholm for President in Massachusetts in 1972, and my father was a journalist in 1972 and covered the campaign, and that both of them went to Miami to the convention. Uh, the Democratic National Convention, and so so they had told me stories as I grew up. I actually remember seeing a, a photograph of Chisholm with my parents, and I mistook her for my aunt. And they said, "No, no, that's that's not that's not Auntie. That's that's Shirley Chisholm. She ran for president someday. You can too." And oh, so wow. I always remembered her. And um, and was curious about her and wanted to teach about her as well as teach biography. So I went looking for that course um, for a text, and I couldn't find one. And so this was in um, 2007, and, um, and I decided uh, I think I had better – I think I guess I, I need to write one. And so that's how I came from being uh, this a social historian in the early 20th century to um, moving into the later 20th century. However, we tend to forget that Chisholm came 
from the early 20th century. She was born in 1924. So she came of age in the Great Depression, World War II, which is that's um, that that those uh, those years are, are are those are the years that uh, originally captured my attention um, as sort of a, the from the New Deal era. So that's um, that's that's how I that's how I came to her and and um, and deciding in um, I think it was 2007 that I went ahead and applied for a grant to explore the topic and and start working on a biography. Uh, and it's funny because we got the idea for this podcast because I was looking for a book on Shirley Chisholm and couldn't find one. So that that led to, wait, why isn't there a book on Shirley Chisholm? But it turns out there's some good books on the way. Um, it's it's getting there. <laughs> um, Anastasia, you, you've written that the this kind of trailblazer talk about Chisholm actually obscures uh, her political and intellectual significance. How should we talk about Chisholm so that we capture her importance for American political thinking, American politics, feminism? Well, I do I do tend to hark back to my intellectual history roots um, be, because she was, um, in, in addition to being a formidable po- political strategist, and we should talk about that, um, she was also an intellectual uh, uh, giant. Um, in terms of her uh, formulating ideas that we talk about now and use now um, that were not in circulation then or that she was she was adapting so for example everybody's talking about intersectionality now and um black feminists have been using intersectionality for decades um it's not a new idea it's uh, just that the um critical race theorist kimberly crenshaw um, conceptualized it 30 years ago in a way that um that that we're that we're using it to mean um, to put into words that we can consider multiple categories of analysis at the same time. That is race, gender, economic background, um, ability, um, it, it, uh, it, uh, age, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, Chisholm saw that, uh, grasped that instinctively and produced a prodigious amount of work on the topic when she was uh, speaking and writing. Um, she, she studied uh, at, at night um, when she was done on the floor of the New York State Assembly and, and Congress. Um, she, she produced an amazing amount of output as as a thinker, and so I think we we see her face as instantly recognizable. You know, saying as I, I was nodding while she was saying, "Oh, you see her all, everywhere," but nobody really engages with what she did. Um, she she produced thought and then brought it to the two legislative bodies that had never heard black feminist thought before. Um, and she got it into 
the record for the first time of the New York State Assembly or the United States Congress. So, um, so she's 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 bringing new political ideas right to the center of political power. Um, tell me a little bit about who has her archives and and how the two of you are accessing her papers. Where are they? Mm-hmm. Who saved them? Yeah. Uh, who should go first? Zinger, you want to take that first and then... No, Anna says she can go. She was talking. Okay, go ahead. Um, it's, it hasn't been easy um, because unlike, uh, um, unlike many congressmen who leave behind many cubic feet of archival material, her most well-known collection at Rutgers University is just a, a few a few cubic feet. Um, so there is the, the Shirley uh, Chisholm papers at Rutgers University that she donated herself. Um, and so that's something. Um, but it is far from. I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but, but why Rutgers? Why not? Why not Brooklyn? Why not um, something in New York? So uh, Ron Becker, who was directing the special collections in 2008, at the time I first went went to the the uh, archives there, told me that she was there at Rutgers, New Brunswick, giving a talk, and somebody asked her if anyone had had told her she had 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 gotten secured her papers at a library, and she she said no, and. And she said, yeah, sure, she would put them there. And she did. Um, It's a great place. I mean, with the Center on Women in Politics and the focus that the university has had in really being pathbreaking in terms of gender studies, it's a great match. It just seems, and I'm right here, I'm three blocks away from Rutgers as we speak. So I'm glad, but that's so interesting. She (laughs) didn't have an existing strong relationship with the institution by any means. So yeah, so Brooklyn is a far, Brooklyn College is a far more logical place. And so in fact... Barbara Winslow um, of Brooklyn College um, sought to create a collection. And uh, Zinga, how many years ago was that that she started the collection? So the project was over 15 years ago in terms of so collection. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, um, we have oral histories. We also have the, we conduct our own oral histories for those who knew Shirley Chisholm and have come, come in contact with Shirley Chisholm, as well as kind of Brooklyn women's um, activists and organizers in Brooklyn from 1945 until present day. And currently, we also have the archive that we, uh, that Barbara Winslow was able to procure. Um, from Shola Lynch's wonderful documentary. So all of the interviews as well as the transcripts. And um, we also have archival materials in terms of photographs and others located at Brooklyn College. And in terms of her other kind of personal papers, those papers are um, still with her estate, even though I have been having conversations with the current um, her current estate now. Yeah. Um, but her personal papers are not. 
I mean, what's at Rutgers, as Anastasia says, is is small, um, and they're mainly speeches. But in terms of her personal papers, those are not located in any archive or library. So really, um, uh, it's making, uh, basically, what the the Shirley Chisholm Project has done is created an archive. Um, and that it is a, it's a treasure trove uh, of the, those oral histories, both from, from the Lynch film and others that have been assembled uh, later um, have been tremendously helpful. Um, but otherwise, it's piecing together uh, things from um, newspaper articles, uh, congressional publications. Um, it, it, it's 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 been a, a challenge. Um, Chisholm herself wrote two memoirs, and those are both uh, really fascinating um, because she has, as as all memoirs do, the the memories are are filtered through her own perspective, and so um, so there are some. Some places where time collapses, some places where it stretches out a little bit, um, some places where she just says something that didn't happen or ha- was was very different, um, and so um, using those those as sources is its own challenge. And where I, I've done everything I can to corroborate the, the details um, as much as possible, but um, but it's that's presented its own challenge. And it also requires to do your own kind of uh, interviews, the oral histories that I've done for the project, as well as for my own book, interviews of other people um, have been um, insurmountable and instrumental in terms of recreating a political history for Chisholm. I also, uh, Zingo, was so impressed that while I was searching around about you and the Shirley Chisholm Project, I found the most stunning thesis written by a student at Brooklyn College who writes a sort of, um, well, for me, it was sort of a tear-inducing thank you to you about how the project and your classes had opened up this opportunity for the student to write about Shirley Chisholm, which I thought was great. That just shows how how Chisholm, if included in this wider Black intellectual history, Black political history, can not just impact the writing of books, but but also our, our teaching and what gets passed on to students. Um, Zinga, I know you've been researching Chisholm and also running the Shirley Chisholm Project. When you're thinking about her political legacy and, and how she has been portrayed and how you wish she would be portrayed. What is it, what are some of the things that you hope that either academics or the wider public should explore? Like, how should we view Chisholm's political importance? Well, I think in many ways it, it requires a significant amount of nuance. I think doing all of the kind of press that I do yearly (laughs) on Chisholm is really conveying the importance of policy for Chisholm. And and because maybe because I'm a, you know, political scientist by training, as well as someone who worked on the ground in politics, it's important that we don't kind of 
as I continue to say, disremember, but we can't kind of detract Chisholm away from the policies and the politics of her life. And so it's important to insert her discussions around everything from immigration to police brutality, to looking at the prison industrial complex, and even in this current moment, as well as the ways in which she defined and redefined Black feminism to be expansive and broad. And so it's important for me that academics engage in the kind of politics of Chisholm, but also the the intricacies that we namely don't talk about when we talk about African-American women in politics. The humanity, the, the mentorship, the engagement of Shirley Chisholm that she had with so many men and women to kind of transform American politics. And it doesn't solely revolve around her Uh, running for the presidency in 1972, that we in many ways engage in how she reimagined American politics, but also how she reimagined the world. That her ideas, her expansive ideas were not limited to the United States, that she was she cared about the African diaspora, that she cared about Africa, that she also had policies around climate control. So I think it's important for us to have a larger understanding of her politics that get us to larger and more general discussions of the ways in which we transform the American political discourse that we're even in right now. Um, And so that's what I would hope that academics would also align themselves to and not be fixated at that we've talked about previously is in terms of her just being a first, that she was way more than that. And that we also engage in the woman who loved to dance and loved to laugh and that mentored people that, you know, at times would be her political foes, that she has a totality of who she was and the life that she lived. Uh, it's funny that you you mentioned this uh, in this way because I uh, interviewed Sharice uh, Burden-Stelly for her biography on W.E.B. Du Bois, and I was preparing your podcast and reading that biography at the same time. There are so many similarities between the two of them, the depth of the intellectual engagement, the interest in the world, the concern not just with... Um, uh, one way of understanding American politics, but broadening it, and also the quality of relationships. One of the things that Burden Stelly starts does in this particular biography is really emphasize how Du Bois he he engaged personally with people, professionally with people. He mentored and he invested all of this uh, energy and intellect in these relationships that then had this remarkable. Uh, uh, intellectual and political effect. And honestly, it really, uh, as I read what you both have written and this at the same time, it really seemed like she had a lot of similarities there. And and so it it really does seem like she is a figure that needs to be thought of as as more than this first. Um, uh, Yeah, period. So I just, I I was so struck by it. (laughs) And I think it's so great because at the Shirley Chisholm Project, I've literally have interviewed people who no one would know 
you know, they're not people of, some people are not of kind of political or uh, name or, you know, they're not well known. But I mean, the average citizen, the average resident of Brooklyn, some of them will talk about the ways in which they engage Shirley Chisholm and the ways in which she helped them, you know, through their daily lives. So while, you know, you will have luminaries like Gloria Steinem and others, you know, who are still living, who have memories of Shirley Chisholm. And of course they have great, you know, have relationships with her, but also the everyday people who have relationships with her um, are also insightful in understanding what also what made her tick and why she considered herself to be a people's candidate more so than any kind of slogan that can be used to describe her politics and who she was. Uh, My students made me promise to ask this question of the two of you. What (laughs) did you think of her portrayal in Mrs. America? My, my students were so taken with this series. For me, it was shocking because, uh, well, because I think of Shirley Chisholm as this very, very diminutive woman who packed a punch. And so visually, it was really hard for me, but they had never seen a picture of Shirley Chisholm. It didn't bother them. But I'm wondering about the substance of the portrayal and and how you felt about it. Well, well I have to tell you that I've been in the last stages. I actually just sent the manuscript um, off to the press. I've been in the last stages of writing it, and I did not want that portrayal to interfere with my own mental image, um, and I did not watch it for that purpose. <laughs> so, so I was very deliberate not to watch it. So I will have to defer. <laughs> well, you can, don't have to defer to me because, in terms of boycotting, because I've actually interviewed some people who really have a significant problem with the with the with the the show the series i have not watched it either <laughs> so well, there's I'm that really, too <laughs> so and and because of and i think it is right in terms of you know i i get asked to and i'm i'm working on two i guess two major film projects on Chisholm as well. Um, there, it wasn't, I think there is an effort. And I think this is documented. I know Gloria Steinem has written, at least in the New York Times or the Washington Post, I think it's the Times. But uh, there have been really blatant kind of discrepancies and the in terms of the lack of engaging historians when you write these pieces. Um, <laughs> I will say that. Yes. Um, and I know of the personal um, personal people who've asked people and they, 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 I don't know if the writers were very adept in terms of engaging. I know I wasn't engaged. I don't, it's, you know, and Barbara wasn't either. Nobody so. asked me. <laughs> Um, and so I think that's not a great sign. Um, and so (laughs) I don't know, I really don't have like an opinion on that, but I do have an issue with people who are writing, um, who are doing these kind of works and not engaging the history in a certain way. So, I mean, I'm excited that people are interested in Chisholm by seeing her, but I, like I continue to say, if you want to see I guess a better depiction is really Shola's documentary that has a, 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 a better framing of Chisholm. 
Well, um, I'll I'll admit I did watch Mrs. America because my students said that I would love it, and um, I can see why they love it. It's a very, very uh, beautifully filmed, and there's a lot of detail in terms of the costume and the language and the sexism. And there's some good things in there about Shirley Chisholm, but we we won't dwell on it. Let let me instead uh, follow up, <laughs> Anastasia, with you about. Her as a political strategist, you said that we, we, need to, we need to remember that and to emphasize that. And why is that so important? Well, so uh, she, she was one of the first people to employ a woman, a, a majority woman staff. In fact, her, her first staff was all women. And she enjoyed. She employed a woman uh, legislative assistant, a legislative aide, um, who she hired from somebody else. Um, and she really did things uh, in a in a way in an innovative way that was not that that was that wasn't that was not. Uh, power as usual. So she didn't care necessarily who got the credit if she got done what she wanted to get done. And she she was a coalition politician. So, So that meant that if she wanted to get something done and she wasn't on the right committee, her legislative staff would work with other members of Congress on other committees to get work done. Um, she would also have interesting and odd coalitions with people you wouldn't think, colleagues you wouldn't think she would get along with. So, for example, um, Louise Day Hicks, who was notorious for opposing busing in Boston, and was a member of the that um, uh, um, the the delegation um, from from South Boston that uh, was uh, vehemently opposed, part of uh, su- supported uh, was was seen as an ally of those white demonstrators who were uh, really um, uh, racist in their uh, uh, opposition to busing students to schools in, in the early 1970s. Um, but on child care, uh, she actually had some alliances with Hicks um, and on child development. So um, she actually worked with people who you wouldn't think would be allies. And that's not anywhere, that only came out through interviews that I did with with her staff, um, she famously, or some would say infamously, had that hospital meeting with George Wallace after he got shot during the 1972 campaign. And uh, people said, why would you go and meet with him? Um, you know, he stands for everything that you oppose. And um, for publicly, she said, um, well, you know, he's on the campaign trail, like for, uh, you know, for, for like I am, um, sort of a great there for the grace of God there, but for the grace of God go I, because she re- she was physically threatened on the campaign trail. Um, but actually, then 
after it, in it, when she was working in 1973 and 1974 on changing minimum wage laws to cover domestic service workers, um, she had Wallace calling some of his southern some of his colleagues um, in Congress from the South and convincing them to vote for her amendment to get minimum wage coverage for those workers um, because he had this relationship with her. So she would deploy some of these tactics, um, the interpersonal tactics, and it it makes it very difficult to document what it was that she did because it's not necessarily, it's not in the hearing reports, it's not in the floor speeches, um, it, it's hard to find, but it's the, these these informal strategies um, where she doesn't necessarily get the credit, um, but she she lets other it, she, it looks like other people get the credit, um, and she goes ahead and gets something done. So she, if you notice, there's not a lot of legislation with her name on it. Uh, that she actually introduced. Um, another example is uh, uh, when she was advocating for Title I funding um, in this uh, uh, Elementary and Secondary Education Act renewals um, uh, in the, uh, oh gosh, I don't know if you remember what year this would have been, six, uh, 76 um, or seven. Um, she was trying to get, these amendments, um, Title I funding, um, restricted to school districts that were actually uh, materially really in need, um, not middle class school districts that you know were not as as in need. Um, she, uh, Carl Perkins, was the chair of education and labor, and he's from Kentucky, where I am. Um, she had built this alliance with him and. Um, she wasn't even on, yeah, that's right. She wasn't even on education and labor anymore. She had moved to the rules committee. Um, but she was working that with him and, um, introduced an amendment to the bill to keep that funding in truly needy school districts. Um, so that so that uh, she could get her objectives accomplished through her alliance with an unlikely ally. So it's those kinds of strategies, her willingness to kind of cross all sorts of lines um, that uh, her political strategic genius uh, emerged. And it's such a fascinating combination of being exceptionally principled and in 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 order to get your principled legislation passed, you don't really care if your name is on it or who you cooperate with. It's kind of genius. And and it's funny that we haven't talked about her like we talk about people like LBJ, who sort of owned the house as strategists who knew how to do a certain kind of horse trading. And this is a very different, very, very her version of this, which is, is not hyper-masculine. It's, it's, it's her own. And it's, it's interesting that we don't talk about her as a great political strategist in the House. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, in, in fact, she would. She got all sorts of grief from her home district. Um, well, certain people in her home district. Uh, the, 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 the the there there was always somebody looking to, to take the the um, the crown of of controlling Brooklyn politics from her, including Major Owens in the late late seventies, early eighties. And and so, um, so yes, so so they would say, well, she's not really doing anything out, up there in Washington, and it's true, you know, it's it, it's hard to sort of show what it is. And she would brag about, well, I got these grants, I got these grants, but how do you explain that? You know, this bill wouldn't have passed except for you if it wasn't for you, but your name's nowhere on it. But then, if you look at her state. Her, I think the best kind of testament to some of her political strategy and her genius is also looking at her state politics. I think she was way more successful in terms of passing legislation in terms of the state politics than you can see when she's in Congress. And even though she was in um, the New York State Assembly for a limited um, amount of time, you can see what her agendas were like we have the seek program all of the kind of educational mm-hmm. as well as and she did a significant portion of policies around you know in her home district even when she is in the house like she does do the important pork and barrel um mm-hmm. things that people <laughs> they say they hate <laughs> but you know, she was still able to bring a significant amount of resources to Bedford-Stuyvesant, one including um, the Bedford-Stuyvesant Restoration um, Plaza and and all of the things that happen, that happens in Fulton Street for um, Brooklyn Natives, the Billy Holiday Theater, all of those kind of recreational things, and as well as some of the educational funding that she was able to procure for the district are still living testaments. We have the SEEK program that is still in existence. You have students who receive that funding to go to city and state universities because of the legislation that she passed. So she's able to she's able to be effective. And then there are also limitations, right? There are always limitations in terms of her ability to be a, an effective spokesperson versus being an effective legislator. Um, and some of that has to deal with her, her unsurmountable idea, ideology of being unbought and unbossed. And you know, I think later in life, she, when she's in Congress and doing some of the things that she did in terms of coalition building, what's her 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 own understanding, or at least coming to terms with the importance of being a legislator and in negotiating and compromising and working with individuals that you know were, would be unlikely for her to have alliances and coalitions with. Let me ask you a question about um, something she used to say about herself. She used to say that that people had to get used to the idea that someone other than a white man could be president. And I'm, I'm wondering for both of you, what is it about Shirley Chisholm or the 1972 election 
that that matters for us understanding this particular contemporary moment in the United States, the the upcoming elections, the presidential and the down ballot elections, the the narratives around Senator Harris, um, the narratives around the national protest movement. What what is what does Chisholm give us to understand those events in a in a richer and more nuanced way? I think was important in this kind of historical context is about more about the substance and substantive representation than it is about the symbolic representation of having a woman or having an African-American or having a Black woman in position. Chisholm, when she runs in 72 and everyone wants to say she was a failure, and I continue to tell people even in 2020, you didn't have a woman or an African-American cross that stage at convention. And Shirley Chisholm did that in 1972. And so to me, that is indeed a, an accomplishment and a winning strategy of her deliberate decision to make it to convention, regardless of the animosity that she really received from the Democratic Party and the non-support. But the importance, I think, for her 72 campaign is really about us not making those connections, but making the connection that Chisholm is creating a coalition. It's the same coalition that we're able to see Barack Obama really win the presidency. And so if we look at Chisholm in 72 and the importance of her saying that we need to collectively work together as marginalized and oppressed people provides the winning strategy. And so when we look today and we look at Kamala Harris, yes, that's a great accomplishment, but Chisholm was saying that I can be president. I don't have to be vice president um, to to go up the roles, but I can indeed, and I am indeed um, able to be president right now. You know, there was someone who asked her, oh, what would you do if you're asked to be vice president? And she says, actually, (laughs) I can be president at this very moment. And that's why I'm running. Right. And so (laughs) believe it or not. Right. And so (laughs) this kind of dismissive behavior that I also Mm. want us to think for us to think about that we're we're overjoyed by the symbolism of Kamala. But Chisholm is not running around. I think everyone thinks she's running to be symbolic, but she's Mm -mm. not. She's running to change the discourse and the agenda. She's leveraging herself because of her own positionality, but she's leveling herself to talk about the issues that would not have been on the platform if it possibly was not for Shirley Chisholm, who was running in 72. And so while we're in this moment, you know, everyone is in this moment of uh, of exhortation and jubilance, you know, and it's great, but we still... I think what we're missing is really the substance of Chisholm, the platforms that Chisholm is saying that we need to discuss for the Democratic Party. And I think in many ways, the critique of people who are on the ground in the Black Lives Movement, people who are 
engaging in this kind of racial reckoning around all of these issues of inequalities are not asking for, in many ways, they're demanding against the symbolism. And so to say that in 72, Chisholm is saying, don't pacify yourself with having someone who is a trailblazer, but how do we really engage in what is political power? And many ways we try to not connect Chisholm with power because she is gendered in a certain way, because she's raced in a certain way. But she is tremendously um, focused on how do we create political power for marginalized and oppressed people. And so when we look at this particular moment, that is a part of that legacy. And if we don't discuss that for Chisholm, then maybe something is actually, we're, we're not in an, as advanced as we think we are in terms of our politics in 2020. Yeah, I, I, I think Zinga put that really beautifully. Um, and she was fond of quoting Frederick Douglass, that power concedes nothing without a demand. Um, and that's one of my favorite quotes of hers uh, uh, through, you know, it's Douglas, but it's, it's via Chisholm. And it's, that's what guided so much of what she did. Um, and also, um, it reminds me that she used to, she used to exhort uh, uh, people during that 72 campaign to let me be your instrument. I just want to be your instrument for change. Um, and she, she was accused of all sorts of things, of being crazy and of being greedy, uh, trying to be a power broker. And I mean, yeah, I, that was true in some ways. She was trying to be a power broker in terms of transferring power to people who didn't have it before, not to herself for the yeah. sake of herself, mm-hmm. but but to but to those who didn't have it. Um, and, and that was the whole the whole point of of the campaign. Well, I cannot wait for both of these books. And you will have to promise me, both of you individually, to come back so we can do one show on each one of them, um, either with me or one of the other hosts on new books. I hope it'll be me. And because this is this is all what we need. Um, Zinka, I am so my head is spinning because I, I, there was a tweet that the Shirley Chisholm Project put out that, that resonated with me, and, but Twitter is so short, and I'm not really necessarily the best person on Twitter, so you just said it better, which is that actually Shirley Chisholm is not as helpful for understanding Kamala Harris. She's more important for understanding Black Lives Matter. That everybody wants to sort of talk about her and Harris, but that's actually that's not really the helpful analogy right now. And I think what you said about the coalition and the idea of, of dignity and action and having this uh, set of policies and strategy, it really does seem that that, that would be the more interesting piece um, for her. Um, and, you know, Anastasia, I, I think that you're like calling attention to this the strategic part and the fact that we we want to make that into ambition or it's too ambitious, but really she was she was behaving the way all effective politicians behave and modifying it with her own style according to her own principles. It's mm-hmm. it, she's really an astonishing figure. 
Um, Remarkable. Thank you both so much for taking the time during teaching in a pandemic and researching in a pandemic and everything else that you're both doing. I want to encourage listeners to follow the Shirley Chisholm Project on Twitter. It's a really informative feed. And I will put up links to all of the um, documentaries and other uh, um, uh, incredible resources that were mentioned during the podcast. Thank you both so very much. Thank you. You're quite welcome.